it is better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. <laughs> Have you heard that adage? It's sometimes attributed to Abraham Lincoln and sometimes to Mark Twain, but it clearly came from somebody before them, but it's beautiful, isn't it? And how often we defy it, right? When's the last time you spoke something that made you feel a fool? It's been election season and politicians talk so many times. You have to give them a break when they gaff, when they, when they somehow step out. It was the 2000 campaign and uh, Al Gore and George W. were going at one another in the New Hampshire primary and with, within days of one another they said these two things. Of course, Mr. Gore became known as an environmentalist and a creation care guy. Uh, at the time he had a little trouble with the animal kingdom. He said, um, in characterizing his opponent, he said, you know, Zebras can't change their spots. <laughs> and not to be outdone, George W. Bush wanted to be a man of the people, and he reached out to them and said, I know how hard it is to put food on your family. <laughs> Give them a break. They talk all the time, right? It, it, just the number of words. It shows up in our lives too, of course. I still wake up in a cold sweat from a time probably 20 years ago. I was having post, you know how you have a little breakfast between Easter sunrise and the rest of the services? Um, I was at a breakfast like this and I was sitting with people I meant to impress and they were talking about how lovely the sunrise had been at the sunrise service and I said, you know, I grew up in Oregon and we loved watching the sunrise over the Pacific. <laughs> geographically challenged in their mind yet all these years. And then there's that commercial that's just freshly out. It's a Geico commercial, you may have seen it, and it, it catches us all, I think. It's at an airport and it's at TSA and this man is coming through and he takes his carry-on off the, off the belt and is getting ready to go and the TSA woman says, have a nice flight. And he says, you too. <laughs> which is something we do, isn't it? And he's starting to walk on and we feel stupid when we do that and he started to have that expression and then everybody laid in, lays into him. Have you seen the commercial? His, his kids are embarrassed. They said, Dad, how could you say that? And his wife is, come on. And, and the woman says, do I look like I'm going on a flight? And the other TSA guy says, this isn't how airports work, sir, right? The poor guy is caught in this moment when he just tossed off a few words and, and we sometimes open our mouths and look foolish, right? John chapters three through six has characters who likely could have used the maxim, it is better to remain silent and be thought of pool than to speak and remove all doubt. In chapter three, we have Nicodemus, this learned rabbi of the Pharisees, who comes to Jesus by night because he's curious and he asks Jesus some questions and Jesus says, if you want in, you, ha you must be born again. Famous scene, right? And Nicodemus, this learned rabbi, is trying to do the gymnastics of how he would make his way back into his mother's belly, right? And Jesus catches him on it and says, are you a learned man? So far from this, right? 
I think Nicodemus might have wanted to take that one back. You can edit texts now. You can, you can take them back, have you noticed? You can send a text, and if you get it quickly enough, you can bring it back. Nicodemus might have wanted that retrieve. In chapter 4, it's the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus has just offered her living water. And she's doing the calculations of how far she walked to get there to do this uh, water retrieval and how often she does it. And she says, that's exactly what I want. I'll never have to come here again, <laughs> right? He's living water. She's H2O. And then in chapter 6, the one we're going to get to today, we get the first of the I am statements of Jesus. You know that two weeks ago, Thomas preached wonderfully. And by the way, if you missed either of these, please go back and get them. Uh, Thomas preached wonderfully on I am the good shepherd, right? I am the good shepherd, which comes later in John. And then just after that comes chapter 11, where, uh, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, the first of those I am statements we saved for a communion day, and it is simply Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. And he does it in the passage that we're about to read together. So let's, let's listen together for the word of God, and let me context it a little bit. Jesus here has just done the miracle of feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. He's just finished feeding a lot of people. And he and his disciples have gone across the Sea of Galilee. And the people look for him and they come all the way to Galilee, to Capernaum, to try to find him. And as we open our passage in, in John 6, 25, they have just caught up with Jesus. So that's where we are. Let's listen together for the word of God. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, the crowd said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus, not liking small talk, by the way, answered them, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, Well, what must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has, the one whom he has sent. So they said to Jesus, What sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven. It was it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They, probably thinking the way that the the lady at the Samaritan well thought, say, sir, give us this bread always, as if there's going to be a repeat of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, 
that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This indeed is the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. So we have Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and now the crowd along the Sea of Galilee, all going to the material when Jesus is going to something beyond the material. And we're sitting there as readers of the Bible together on this Sunday morning saying, these people, <laughs> they just don't get it. But I want us to remember that we were kind of born on third base and might start to think that we hit a triple. That we were born with a silver cross around our neck, in a way. Right? It's 2,000 years from when this happened. And in those years, we've had 20 centuries of people gathering on Sundays and other days with one another to look at this character, Jesus, and say, he's our guy. They had no such advantage. Have you seen The Chosen? Any of you seen The Chosen? It's a, it's a new uh, Prime series, right, on life of Jesus. And you can kind of get the sense he's, he's incognito. How are we going to figure him out? And, and one way to imagine how the project went for these people. We're looking around, some looking for a Messiah, some looking for a son of man, others just looking for something. How they might have discovered or thought who this is, this is the guy. And to do that, I wanna give you an image. Uh, you're out in this vast field where there is a camp jamboree going on. And so you've got thousands of tents, right? Thousands of tents are arrayed throughout, and they aren't those new kind of, they aren't the nylon kind of tent. They're the old, old-fashioned canvas tent that people have to lug around, and they're so heavy, and they're all out in this field, thousands of them, and there's a lamp under one of them. One of these tents contains a bright lamp, but it's canvas, and none of these are shining out through the canvas. You can't see it. How are you going to decide which one has the lamp? That was their project. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through him, without him, nothing was created. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind, right? Light. In one set, because in 1.14, it says, and the Word became flesh and pitched a tent among us tabernacled among us, right? Dwelt among us. So now we're back to our tents. How am I going to find which one is this guy? I'm looking for him, but what's going to set him apart? And in John's gospel, the way that the, the episodes get arrayed, the way that the story gets told of Jesus's life, there are two ways that he hopes and Jesus hoped people would be able to discover Who's the light? Who's the lamp? Who's the, who's the right tent? And they're kind of like little pinpricks that allow the light to come out. The first kind of thing is a series of signs. 
right? Do you see, you heard the sign language, not sign language, but sign words in, the, in our text this morning. A series of signs where Jesus does fantastic, wondrous things. In chapter two, we get the first one. Jesus is at a wedding, they run out of wine. His mom says, uh, fix this. And Jesus says, well, it's not really right timing. And, and she says, fix this. And so he turns big barrels of water into big barrels of not just wine, but fine wine to rescue a family from embarrassment and to show his glory, right? Pinprick. And, his, and after this episode, it says, and his disciples believed in him. These kinds of signs are littered through the gospel. In chapter 9, there's going to be a man who was born blind who gets well. In chapter 11, that Jill preached last week, uh, it was the raising of Lazarus. Things that Jesus does that show him, that, that separate him from the herd, that separate him from all the other tents that are around. The signs run a path through John all the way up to chapter 20, um, that says Jesus did more signs than this, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life through his name. These signs are there to be a highlight pen, a kind of heavenly highlight pen. On the other hand are these I am statements. Because if the signs are things Jesus does for people, the I am statements are the ones in which he tells who he is. It's almost like the libretto for the nonverbals of making water into wine or healing a man born blind or whatever the others are, right? And so, so I am, in this case, the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. It's Jesus's way of joining the heavenly highlighter pen project. Because while you and I grew up with museum pieces where even the baby Jesus has a halo around his head. These folks didn't. So there's Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. And up through this whole episode, these people are thinking, hmm, we could have bread every day. We could get new bread every day. I mean, he just fed 5,000 people. If we follow him around, we don't have to go to work. We don't have to write all those things. And I, just as I start to feel superior, I remember that Liz and I are newly, uh, Liz and I are newly empty nest. <coughs> and we, we don't have any pretense of winning the lottery and sitting back or of, of things like that. There are people I know who budget the money of this Powerball every week just in case they win. I, that's not us, right? We have smaller aspirations. Our bar is lower. We just want to find a kitchen table that magically produces a new dinner every night. <laughs> it's been 20 years of fixing meals for these two guys who have rather narrow palates, right? We're, we're worn out and we'd love a magic. We know how those people felt. We know how those people felt. We don't have to put dinner on the table. He, we can follow this guy around. He's going to give us this. And it's not just Liz and I, is it? We do have this human tendency of flocking to the material or the thing that's palpable or the thing that we think is going to get us home that is either good food or good things or, or, or exciting things. The University of Texas won yesterday, right? And it was exciting. 
and I can get caught in sport. Maybe this is the ultimate thing. Maybe it's going to really get me home. Some of you, it's the arts. Others of you, it's other things, right? For many of us, it's material things. And I was... The first sort of ministry work I did, I was still a professor, but I, I was doing a sabbatical from my school, and I went to help teach Bible study in a, in a congregation not far from where I was teaching. And it was one of the most affluent uh, cities in the nation. It's a bedroom community for New York where a lot of New York bankers lived. It was vying with Newport Beach, California for the highest per capita income in the nation at the time. And I remember going down and teaching Bible study, and Bible study was full. We had like 30 people in the 6.30 a.m. class, and then about 40 at 10, and then in the evening we'd have these big crowds. And I remember looking at these people and saying, they've got everything that the billboards tell them they need to be happy. They've got every kind of status, every kind of stuff. They got a house bigger than I could imagine putting stuff in. And here they are at these church meetings and worship and Bible study. And I asked one, frankly, one day, you know, you've got the brass ring. You climbed, you got the brass ring. Why are you here? And I was being a little facetious. But he said, Alan, I was sold a bill of goods. I put my ladder up the wrong wall. I walked up the ladder, I made it to the top, and it wasn't what, it, what I thought it would be. It was empty. This is a guy with everything you need. And so, all of us know how to put ladders up the wrong wall. And our walls are different. The, the ladders we put up and the way we go there are different. I want to tell you the story of one guy and his journey. My friend Skip Masbach. Skip was a student of mine, but before that, he was a, a high-level lawyer in Washington, D.C. He was at Hogan and Hartson, which at the time was a central firm for uh, political law in Washington. He was a litigator, and he never lost a case. Then he went out on his own with his own firm, and it, his success continued. He rode the Concord. He was Jimmy Carter's lawyer for a while. He was Mario Cuomo's, Cuomo's lawyer for a while. So he had status, and he had money, and he had all of these things that he, his path had set out to find. And suddenly it all started to bottom out on him. It wasn't a tragedy or a disaster or anything like that. It was just emptiness. He started to feel empty. He'd gone to church as a kid. He, had, he, had even, he went to church with his family dutifully and took them to the right places at the right time and went to the worship, <coughs> pardon me, to the worship service but it was emptying, nothing was working. And so he thought, well, I'm working too much. So he went to his firm and said, can I take leave or can I take a, a diminished role? And they said, we wanna keep you, we'll do anything we can. And so yeah, take a diminished role. And he went and read the Bible in his barn and he still got the tear-stained Bible from that year of reading the Bible and realizing in these pages, like John 6, that there was something that he'd been missing. He even one time was riding on a city bus in, uh, in D.C. He's riding on the bus. He's just riding and his mind wanders and he looks over and there's Jesus on the seat across the way. Now hard scrabble lawyers don't share those things in mixed company, right? Those experiences in mixed company, he didn't tell anyone. But here's this Jesus sitting on the other side saying it's gonna be okay. 
had these spiritual experiences and they were entirely different than the satisfactions that he had sought all his life. And so he came off to divinity school where I met him and was this curious guy trying to sort out how, this work, how all this worked. And he became a youth pastor and then a, then a senior pastor at, a, at the very church that I gave the story from earlier. This wealthy church because he knew that if he went there and talked to them, he had a credibility that a lowly grad student with no money wouldn't have. He would talk to them and say, I've been there. I know what it is to put your ladder up the wrong wall. And, and he taught them spiritual practices. He did a, a class called Quest for the Spirit because he knew was, there was more and he knew they didn't know yet where to find it. And he had these full classes of people praying together and doing Jesuit exercises and all of these things by way of just realizing there's more than my first ladder had me set for. There's more than bread every day from a magical table. There's more, there's bread of life. The Greek word for life is zoe. And Skip, who had all the accoutrements, once sat down and read John 10, 10, where it says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And he know, knew what one kind of abundance is and he knew Jesus didn't mean that kind. There's a life that's bigger than the one that I had. He named his first dog Zoe. Because life was what he had found. Life beyond winning games or winning uh, lotteries or, or earning great money or loving of painting on a wall, those are all good things. But there was something beyond and Jesus offered it to him and to us. We said, I am the bread of life. There's something more. Friends, bread brings up this table behind me. We're gonna have communion this morning. We don't do it always in this service. We're having it this morning. And the history of Christianity is a little strange about this table because once Jesus said, I am the bread of life and equated himself with bread, there were various reactions across the history of Christians. Some said, if he's the bread of life, then what we need is to eat this and drink that and we'll be good to go, period. And so just doing that, Irenaeus in 180 wrote a, wrote a piece that said, this is the medicine of immortality because he's gonna raise us up on the last day if we just eat this stuff as if it's a pill, right? There are extremes in Christianity that have said, the act of eating it, period, absent any upper story, will get you home. And then there are other extremes. I went to a Quaker college where they didn't have communion. Quakers don't do communion. I don't know if you know this. They don't do it in this way. They don't do it with physical things. And it was, it was enchanting to me and mysterious to me. They said baptism and communion are spiritual realities. And at first I didn't understand, so I did this subversive thing and served some buddies in the, first, in the basement of Pennington Hall, my dorm. I served some Quakers communion with bread and cup. I thought I was doing something very godly. But they had happened on something, this second floor that we're talking about, this upper other place where we can put our ladders. It's just that maybe they missed something about what bread and cup can do for us. Because if we don't think it's good all by itself, and we don't think it doesn't need, we don't need it, somewhere in the middle, we can land with, maybe this is the gateway. 
maybe this bread and this cup in our humanness become a way of moving us toward a God, a God who is much larger than a meal, toward a Christ who is the bread of life. So this morning, we gather in the presence of a God and of a Christ who know where our ladders are. And instead of tearing them out from under us, they redirect us to a better wall. They redirect us to the bread of life, to Zoe. May it be so. Amen. Amen. Amen.